Okay, welcome everybody. It's a pleasure to have you all here joining us. Um, we have this week, we're doing on Dikduk. It's something that I know Rabbi Dweck, Sina and myself, we, we said from the beginning that this is something which is very important to us. Um, and it's taken some time until we've actually got to it, but it's always been a priority. And um, it's amazing that we have uh, Mrs. Adele Tawil, who has been a expert on this, been an educator for over 10 years. She started out teaching in Barkai Yeshiva in New York and then made Aliyah and is teaching, continued teaching in Yerushalayim. She now educates in a different forum, guiding groups of people as they tour all over the country. In Israel, she holds an MA in general education and special ed and lives in Yerushalayim with her husband. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And it's the first part of a three-part series. And um, what we'll do is we'll be around just um, under an hour and we'll then take questions afterwards. I think there's a lot to get through, so it'll be better. I think we'll, we'll leave the questions till the end. Um, but obviously feel free to, to pop it into the, into the chat if you do have it. And I think at the end we'll, we'll address them, if that's okay. So, Bechavod, uh, we're looking forward to this. Um, all yours. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening, or good night, depending on, depending on which country you're in. I'm so excited to be here. And I want to tell you something that I used to discuss when I was dating. When I would go out on dates, I would try to find topics that were of common interest between me and the guy I was dating. And if the guy liked speaking about Israel or Tanakh, that was great. And if he liked speaking about Hebrew grammar, my eyes would grow big and he would score major points. And that, that was very high up on my list. I just always loved Hebrew grammar. Happens to be, ironically, um, I don't think I ever discussed Hebrew grammar with my husband. <laughs> Maybe that's why it worked. Maybe it's not the best dating topic. Although I will say that now, every night since I started preparing the series, we're discussing grammar, looking things up in the chumash. So it's, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. Now, why do I love Hebrew grammar so much? Most people hear grammar and they, they shudder from it. They want to run the other direction. So I grew up in a house where proper reading was very, very important. And I remember from a young age, my brothers would learn how to read from the Torah. I think I have a recording of my brother, six years old, reading. And his pronunciation, even as a six-year-old, was amazing because it was very important to my father and my father would practice reading with them. And if they made even the slightest mistake, if they missed the Dagesh, if they said a Sheva wrong, he would make them start all over. Now, as girls, I have four sisters, we didn't get the same attention towards our reading that my brothers got. And it was fine, I understood. I wasn't going up and reading from the Torah, but because it was something that was done in my house, I would always be listening and hearing how important it was. And I just love it. I love the systems of it. I love the rules. I love the exceptions. And it's, it's a topic that I'm thrilled to talk about. I hope to share my love of grammar with you and of Pesukim. And uh, let's begin. <laughs> okay. Okay. So like what it was mentioned earlier, this is going to be a three-part series. I'm going to outline in the beginning of each class what topics we're going to cover, so you'll, you'll, you'll know what to expect. The first question that I want to tackle, and, and I also will say that it's 
one of my the hot the my number one goal for this whole series is to pique your interest in proper reading and the rules of grammar and this is really just a taste of it because this each topic is so concentrated and intense that in order to really become an expert on it you have to do follow up but at least I'm going to try to give you a small taste so you know how wide and wonderful the world is and what's out there so the first point I want to focus on today is who are Chachmeh Mesora and what was their contribution the second point is does it really matter if you mispronounce a word and the third topic is how are the Hebrew letters supposed to be pronounced and I know that we all live in different countries and our accents come into play also depending on are we Sephardic, Ashkenaz, this school, Yemeni, all those differences so I'm going to pick one but I I Part of the excitement, I think, is that there's so many differences, and we'll see even at the roots that there were differences in how the letters were pronounced. So Hebrew, the decline um, of Hebrew as a spoken language had been going on for a really long time, so from the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And we could see examples of the decline of Hebrew as a spoken language if we open up the Tanakh. They open up to Sefer Daniel. Most of it is in Aramaic because that's what people spoke. Sefer Ezan and have parts in Aramaic. And I think the prime example is Hamud Bavli. Now we have the opposite, that we don't really know Aramaic. But back then, that was the language that they spoke. And that was the language that these books were written in. So if we eventually want to revive Hebrew as a spoken language or even as a language where we're very aware of the rules, it's going to be more difficult if it's not something that we're discussing on a, on a daily day, uh, in daily life. So Hebrew started to decline. And then between the 7th and 10th centuries, we have the Muslim conquest, and Hebrew is declining even further. And the rabbis, they are aware it's going on. And similar to the Mishnah being written down because of the panic that, that that's going to be forgotten, the rabbi said, if we don't do something now, the, the laws of Hebrew are going to be forgotten of the rules, the mesora, the ta'amim, the nekudot, the whole system to it. So we need to do something to save it. And they, that was the, we're going to see that really from earlier, they were even talking about how to preserve it in an organized way, but this was really the impetus to um, making organized rules written down. And because Hebrew wasn't a spoken language, the way they got the rules of grammar was from Kitve Yad, Tanakh, Mishnah, Shelot, and Shuvot, because those books, questions were written in Hebrew. So based on that, they were able to come up with um, some of the rules. Now, even from the time of the Gemara, how things were pronounced and how the traditions were passed over was something that's important. In Sefer Nechemiah, there's a pasuk, Vayikiru basefer betorata Elohim, Meforash v'som secha vayavinu bamikra. And with the Gemara, it talks about this, so you, you have it in front of you, I'm just going to go towards the bottom. Vayavinu bamikra, elo piske te'amim. That the Gemara comments on the words vayavinu bamikra, this is talking about the te'amim. And then the last line the rabbis say that the masorot were forgotten, and then they went back and uh, uh, came up with a basis for it. So even as early as then, people, the rabbis were concerned with what's the proper way to read, what is the masorah, and all of the rules that we, the reading with tamim and the dikduk, 
all of that could be traced to Halakha Moshe Sinai. So it's not something that one day people said, oh, let's just come up with a system. It was something that was passed on and on and on. And we see an example here from Nehemiah based on how the Gemara explains it. From this, as early as the sixth century is when we have this group of Chachamim called Chachmeh Mesora. Mesora meaning tradition that we're passing over. And they operated until about the 11th century. And there, there were two prime areas where Chachmeh Mesora operated. I, well, something I want to point out before I tell you the two prime areas, Mesora, some people explain, say they're called Chachmea Mesora because they're passing over the tradition. Another example is that if you have the, the word Masor in Aramaic, it means to count. Because one of the things Chachmea Mesora did was count the numbers of words. And a lot of times, if you look in your Chumash, at the end of a parasha, it'll say how many words are in the parasha. And that was something that concerned them. How many how many words, how many letters, we you know, is very important. And Sefer Torah is is Psula, if it doesn't have the right amount of letters. And the two main areas were Bavel and Tferia, and Eretz Yisrael. So it's a fun fact about Tferia. Um, I, it was mentioned in the introduction that now I'm a tour guide, so I like, I, I do a lot of our mitzvah trips, and I like going to Tiberias, and um, usually if it's a bar mitzvah boy, I'll say, do you know where, you, you read from the Torah so beautifully on Shabbat, do you even know where that whole system came from? And then usually they say no. And I say, well, in fact, it was developed in Tveria. So it's really, a, this a, a city has a lot. So we have two centers, Bavel and Tiberias. And in Bavel, they developed a system of Nikud, which went over the letters primarily. And I'm going to show you a picture of what that looked like. Here's an example of, according to the Chachmeh Mesorah in Bavel, how they wanted the system to work. You could look, um, you see on top the Nekuda, they look familiar to us where the Senapir, the Kaskeset, we're familiar with these words, and you see how the, the Nekuda is on top. In Tveria, they had the opposite system. They said the system of Nikud should be on the bottom, and that is what we use today. And ultimately, the the system from Tiveria is the one that stuck and is the one that we use today, spread all over the Jewish world. It was seen as the most accurate and authoritative. However, even in Tiveria, there was disagreement. And when I, I think today about how many different traditions there are to read Hebrew and pronounce letters, it makes me feel better to know that even then in the sixth century, there still were different schools of thought. And the two primary schools were the, the school of Ben Asher and the school of Ben Aftali. Now, the, the, how it further developed was the Sephardim usually would follow Ben Asher and Ashkenazim would follow Ben Aftali. Now, something I want to mention now, I can't believe I forgot it in the introduction. Part of me loving uh, Hebrew grammar was when I was about 20, I took this diktu class with someone named Mr. Norman Didia, and he helped me tremendously even in preparing this, and I'm really grateful to him, and a lot of what I know is from him. And I also want to say, even though I grew up in a house where Hebrew reading was stressed, I didn't actually know how to read really well until I was 20. And it, 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 it makes me feel better that you're never too old to learn. I was 20. Now, I knew all the rules, but no one ever told me in school that you're supposed to apply them. I thought you just learn them. I knew what you're supposed to put where, but I never applied them. And the first time I found out how to apply the rules, I was <laughs> in shock. So I, I want to just mention that uh, Norman Didia is a tremendous expert on TikTok, and he helped me a lot in this. And a lot of the, the sources you're going to see and information came from him. So I just want to give him the credit.
Um, ben Hashem and Ben Aftali, so there were no, the, the, the differences were mostly inconsequential between these different schools of thought. Some of them had to do with the uh, words, is there a makaf, is there not a makaf, which is important because when you're counting words, the, the count is very significant. So that, that's some of the differences. But in general, it was the same, but just know that there were schools of thought, different ones even then. I want to focus in on the Ben Asher family. The Ben Asher family had seven generations of scholars that were experts in the Mesorah. When I say the Mesorah, I mean the Te'amim, the Nekudot, the pronunciation. They were experts. And the latest, the last scholar in this generation of families, his name was uh, Rabbi Aharon Ben Asher. Now, some of you might have heard of him because he is very famous for something that he did, which we're going to talk about in a minute. He taught the Nekudot and the Masoretic notes on the Ketir Alam Soba. For those of you who have heard of that, the Aleppo Codex, we're going to talk about that now, what it is and why it's so important that he did that. What is the Ketir Alam Soba? So here is a picture. If anyone has ever been to the, I'm going to go back in a second, the Israel Museum, this dome is very familiar. This is where they have, they have on the top floor the Dead Sea Scrolls, and on the bottom floor they have the Aleppo Codex, which you could go and see this. Now, if you look at it, first of all, you notice that it's a book. It's not a scroll like a Sefer Torah. One, it makes it much more portable, plus you could write on both sides of the page. And if you notice, in the margins, there's all kinds of notes, and there's notes on the top, and there's notes in the back of the book. And what Aaron Ben uh, Ashed did is he took this text and he put in the Nikud and he put in the Te'amim and he wrote the notes. Now, it's very unique, one, because he was someone of such expertise. And if he's the one that's going to sit and put the information in this book, you're getting the prime, the prime expert who's putting down what's right. Plus, another very unique thing is, now, there were other, you can find other examples of books like, like this. However, a lot of times what the, the Masoretic notes don't match what's actually put in the book. Except in Ben Asher's case, the notes that he wrote on the sides and on the top and on the bottom match what's in the Pesukim. So because he's such an expert, you have the, the, the mo- most expert person writing the Tamim, putting the Nekudot, putting the notes, you know you could trust this. And something today that is an issue when uh, a person is concerned to read properly. You need to have a book with accurate printing. And I know something that's often recommended is the Koran Tanakh, because that's accurate. I say Tehillim every day, and I was saying Tehillim this morning, and I was looking at a word, and now now that I'm doing this series, I'm I'm uh, hyper-sensitive to Dikduk and pronunciation and reading, and I'm looking at the word, and I say, based on what I know, the word should be pronounced this way. But I don't know why the the Ta'amim don't match what I think is right. So I asked my husband about it. And he said, well, why don't you check the Koran Tanakh? That's more accurate. So I opened up the Koran Tanakh. And I said, oh, the Koran Tanakh has it the way that I thought. So the books we read, the books we use to pronounce things, um, we should make sure that they're most accurate possible because we could lead, we could be led to mistakes if it's printed wrong. And it's also another thing if now that a slight variation that I'm talking about Tehillim. When I got married, my mother-in-law wanted to buy me a Tehillim book. I said, great. So we went into a few stores and there's tons of Tehillim books. It's Israel. Of course, it's Tehillim. And one of the things I asked 
every store owner, I said, okay, where are the Tamim? So you open the book and there's no Tamim, there's just the Nikud. And the Tamim, I'm taking the book. I said, yeah, I want to pronounce it properly. How could I do it properly if there's no Tamim? They don't know. Go to the next store, no. Go to the next store, none. So it's, I, I don't know most because it's a very general statement, but it was strange to me that it was hard to find a Tehillim book that had Tamim, which I insist on because I want to read the most accurate possible. Anyway, back to the Keter Aram Sova. This was a very, very accurate Tanakh. It had 24 books. Today, we don't have all 24 books. Uh, some were burned in a fire, some were lost. It's a big mystery what happened to the missing Sefarim of Aram Sovat. The Keter Aram Sovat starts from Devarim and on, but we're missing most of the beginning part. However, there were Chachamim that looked at the Keter and they wrote notations on things. So that's uh, some of what Koden Tanakh relied upon, that they had notes from previous people that saw it. And the so that this I mentioned, that the greatness is the... Nikudot and Tamim remained true to the Masoretic notes incorporated in its margins. It was given the name Keted because of its importance, Keted crown, and Aram Sova was added later on because the Jews of Aleppo guarded it for a few hundred years. This we saw, this is where you can go and see it. So exciting to see, especially the more history you know about this, you go in and you see it, it's like, wow, there it is. It's really exciting. A few more things on the Keted. One, we mentioned the manuscript contained, contained all 24 books of Tanakh, which it doesn't today because it was lost. Written by scribe Salman bin Buya'a. And this scribe, he just like Ben Ashed came from a Masoretic family, he came from a family of scribes. So you have an expert scribe and an expert grammarian putting in the notes. Rabbi Ahadon Ben Ashed put in the notes, as we mentioned. And it was not enough for him to he puts in the notes but he doesn't think now people are going to be experts on Dikduk so he actually appended at the end a book which he wrote called Sefer Amim, which included various grammatical rules now I'm going on and on about the Keted and I said some of you might be familiar with it because Harambam in Hachot Sefer Torah he talks about uh, when if you open up a Tanakh or in the Sefer Torah, you notice that sometimes you have something called a parasha Petucha, where the words, the, the, the line is open at the end. And sometimes you have a parasha Setuma. Um, I didn't bring an example of what it looks like, but you could open a Tanakh later if you're not sure what I'm talking about. Parasha Setuma, where you have words on a line, a space, and then more words. And for those of you that have gone up to a Sefer Torah, um, it should be even more familiar. So it's very, very important to know when it's setuma, when it's petucha, and even how to divide up a Sefer Torah. And Harambam wrote the halachot. And then when he writes, after he's writing the halachot, so he says, I highlighted in red, Ben Asher. What does he say? He says that, I'll read from him. was in Egypt at a point, and that's when Harambam used it. And he said, this is the book that I relied upon. And it was proofread by Ben Ashed, who de- devoted years of meticulous attention. And this is what I used. Now, if Harambam is saying that he used this book, the Aleppo Codex, which didn't have that name at that time, to write the Halakha, then this is a pretty important book. And this is what Harambam bases it upon. And we're lucky to have as much as we do of it to learn the proper words and reading. 
This book over here, you might be familiar with it. It's called the Keter Yerushalayim. It kind of looks like the Lepa Codex in small. And this is um, based on the Lepa Codex, also a very accurate version of Tanakh. I have two at home, but it's not so it's not so comfortable for me to use, but I like just having it on my shelf if I ever need to look something up. So this is a very accurate version of Tanakh, if you've seen it before. And to just continue a little bit more about the history, so after Chachmei Mesorah, we have the Medatakim, the grammarians, and they began to systemize the rules and the concepts. Now, we have this all because that's how the Bezikim work, but no one outright said it until then. And some of the famous grammarians that you might have heard, heard of, Rabbi Sa'ad Yagaon, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra. If you read Ibn Ezra's comments, a lot of times he speaks about grammar because he was a grammarian and that was something important to him. And there's dozens of examples of how knowing gra- how from the grammar that Chachamim got Perushim from the Torah. We're going to give one example of that today and more as we go further on that Adak also cared about grammar. And from various instances of Nikud and Ta'amim, Chachmei Sorah actually transmitted, transmitted how to understand a, a verse, a phrase, or halacha. They learned it from the Nikud and Ta'amim. And here's an example I want to give you. We have in Sefer Shemot, Makeh Aviv Ve'emo Motumat. Now, Ta'amim, the, the system of Ta'amim is really, really smart. We're going to discuss that in the third class, but I just wanted to bring it now to show something. Right here, under the word Aviv, we have a Tam called the Tevir. Now, Tamim are broken into Tamim Chaberim and Tamim Mafsikim. Tamim that join words together and Tamim that tell you to pause. Uh, Tevir is a Tam Mafsik. You have to pause a little bit. And normally, the Tevir would be under the word Makeh. Now, if it was under the word Makeh, you would have the word Aviv Ve'imo joined together and then Motumat. So you would understand if someone is makev, someone strikes their mother and their father, the punishment is death. However, the Chachmei Mesora, they have the Tevid under Aviv. And you pause after Aviv, which means if you strike your father or your mother, you're deserving of death, you don't need to do both. And that's something that we learned that they transmitted just from the Te'amim. So knowing Te'amim is a whole perush in itself, I know every year I uh, try to learn a new perush in the Torah. I often do perush Rashi. I should do one year just perush based on the Ta'amim and how many things I learned just from the Ta'amim because it's, it's incredible how, and this is a halachic example, but there's other examples that they did as well. So the first question, who are Chachmei and What was their contribution? We answered 6th to 11th century. They gave us the basis for how rules are going to be transmitted and they developed the system. Question number two, does it really matter if you mispronounce the word? Like, you can get close enough. Does it really matter? Now, I want to bring a Gemara. So this I have to thank my husband for, because I got him involved in this preparation. He goes, oh, there's a great source in this Gemara, this Gemara, and that Gemara. So it says in the Gemara, Masachat Eruvin, that Bnei Yehuda, Shekpidu Aleshonam Nitkaima Toratam Beyadam. B'nai Yehuda, they were very makpid, they're very stringent on their lashon, so their Torah was upheld. Now, when it says here they were stringent on their lashon, meaning how they spoke, that they spoke properly, they said the right things. And B'nai Galil weren't, so their Torah wasn't upheld. And then the Gemara says, when it says that they were stringent on their words, 
Is it on the words that they said, or is it on how they pronounce the words? And you hear the word and the Gemara answers that B'nai Yehuda, really what it's talking about is the way they pronounce the words was very meduyak, and that very exact, and that's why their Torah was upheld. And B'nai Galil were not so exact in how they pronounced the words, and their Torah wasn't upheld. So right away we see, wow, there is a very big importance to how we pronounce words. Another Gemara that I want to bring up, I'm not going to read this one instead, I'm just going to paraphrase. This, this I thought was fascinating. So the Gemara talks about if you have two teachers, one teacher that's, uh, I'll call him the smarter one that knows more, and one teacher that reads more exact, which teacher should you hire? So at first the Gemara says, well, hire the teacher that knows more. And then the Gemara says, no, you should do the teacher that's more exact. Why? Because if you, you could hire the teacher that knows more, but then if they say something wrong, the mistake is stuck in your head and it's hard to get out. So hire the, the one that's more exact. And then the Gemara brings a story and says that it's mentioned in Sefer Melachim that Yoav, that Yoav is in six months getting rid of all the, the Zecharim, killing all the males. Then David HaMelech goes up to him and he said, why'd you do this? And Yoav answers, now again, this conversation is not in the Pesukim. This is what the Gemara is bringing to prove a point. He says, because it says that Timche, wait, let me just find it. Timche, it's Zachar Amalek. And David says, what do you mean Zachar Amalek? Zachar Amalek. And Yoav says, well, my teacher in school taught us Zachar. And then Yoav goes to his teacher and he tells his teacher, how do you teach us how to read this pasuk? And his teacher says, Zachar. And then Yoav takes out his sword to kill his teacher because uh, a pasuk that we have in Yidmiyahu is Arur Osem Lechet Adonai that someone who does God's work uh, in a sly, false kind of way should be uh, cursed, should be killed. And then the teacher says, no, I'll just, I'd rather just be cursed. You don't have to kill me. And then the answer is back. But a person that, that should be killed needs to be killed. I can't just, nah. And it's not clear what happens at the end. Anyway, this story, like the ones before, is to illustrate a point how we read Hebrew is really, really, really important. Two more, and then we're going to, this is also, you uh, really, really want to learn, um, but I'm happy to teach you. And I actually remember when I was a teacher in Barka Yeshiva, um, Rabbi Dwak would quote this a lot to the Ivrit teachers. Why? Because what is Harambam saying Perusha Mishnayot? He says, here's an example of mitzvah kala. Simchat haregel ulmidat l'shon kodesh. Learning Hebrew. So we tell the Yivri teachers, know that what you're doing is very important. You are teaching the Hebrew language. And, and that's what Harambam gives an example as a mitzvah kala. And the Mishnah is telling us, be just as careful because you don't know the matan sacharan mitzvot. So know that all the learning we're engaged in right now it, it might not be learning Perushim of Torah, although we said that the Ta'amim itself are a Perush, but it, it's, it might be a mitzvah kala, nevertheless, it is a mitzvah, and we don't know the matan sacharan shal mitzvot, and it's really the basis of everything reading properly. And the last thing I want to bring to you, so the Shulchan Aruch talks about um, a shalich tzibur, and who can go up and read, and shalich מי ראוי להיות שליח ציבור? על השליח ציבור להקפיד לבטא נכון את האותיות, 
So you have to make sure you pronounce the letters carefully. So if a shalich tzibur missed aleph and ayin, he says the same way, he can be chazan, and you have to make sure you're not going to swallow the letters, and you have to make sure that you know the difference between a sheva nach and sheva nach, dagashka, dagash chazak, and the shulchan aruch. So this is not his actual language, it's, it's an expansion of it, but you can open up in siman samach aleph. And, and see what he writes. And Masecha Megillah as well also talks about how important it is. So are we convinced that it is very, very important to pronounce properly? Yes. Does it really matter if you mispronounce a word? Yes, it really does matter. And now with all that said, how are they supposed, how are the words supposed to be pronounced? So the Hebrew alphabet, there are three Chachamim that dealt with the number of Hebrew letters that connect per, correct pronunciation and the similarities between Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramaic, and the rabbis are listed few here. That's Adya Gaon, Dunash Ibn Tamim, and Rav Yehuda Ibn Quraysh. They, how many letters are there? Because that's a, a very basic uh, idea. And the laws of Dikduk are based upon the correct pronunciation of the letters and vowels. Now, if someone is going to read and they're not pronouncing the letters right, then <laughs> where do you go from there? That's the most basic. And I think in our school system, how you start in Ghana or in first grade and you learn the letters. So that's the first thing. It's natural projection. And then you learn the vowels and so on and so forth. So a few, a few um, notations about the Hebrew alphabet. Well, there are 22 letters, not including the Sophiot. For seven of them, Beged Kaporet, there is a double pronunciation. However, the difference between Aresh with the Dagesh and without has disappeared. So now most, most of you are familiar with Beged Kefet, that they, all those letters have double pronunciation. And this is from the time of the Medaktikim, the 10th century, the writing that the difference disappeared. So there was once a difference with Aresh, with the Dagesh and without, we don't know what it is anymore. There is no difference between the letter Samech and Sin. Now, I'd imagine that originally there was, because one of the principles we're going to learn is that no two Hebrew letters can sound the same, and Sin and Samech sound the same. So it was, I would venture to say that there was once a difference, and, they, and it was lost, because otherwise, why would there be two separate letters if it sounds exactly the same? And the pronunciation of every letter is unique. No letters pronunciation is made up of two letters. Now, the a letter that might come to mind that's kind of two is a sadi. That in English, let's say you write, you, you're going to write, let's say tzadik, or even Israelis, how they pronounce it is sa. They say like a tz, which is two letters attached. You can't have that. You can't have two letters making up one. Now, I'm not familiar with the way every single adat pronounces letters. I know the way how I grew up. I grew up in the Syrian community in Brooklyn. And uh, one of the things that was really important in the community was correct pronunciation. And it's music to my ears when I'm in synagogue over there and I, I hear words being pronounced. Living in Israel is a little bit more difficult because the, it's just less of a concern. <laughs> um, I asked my husband, I said, do you know the rules of Shiva'im? He said, no, I don't know the rules. I said, well, how do you read if you don't know the rules of Shavayim? He goes, I know more or less. And I said, but didn't you learn it in school? He's like, I don't remember what I learned in school. 
but it's just uh it's just different israel is just a different emphasis a different pronunciation and I already uh, told my husband from now, I said, God willing, when we have kids, we're automatically getting a tutor for my kids where I'll use my brothers or my father or someone because I, I hope my kids will be able to know two ways of reading. The Israeli way of reading and of speaking and then the more exact way. And I think it is possible because I know one of my brothers who's an expert, I remember when he was in fourth grade, I gave him a, a Hebrew book to read, not the Tanakh, and he read it the way an Israeli would read. And then when he read Pesukim, he read that in a certain way. So I said, it's possible for someone to keep two different systems in their head. So it is a bit problematic that um, in Israel, the letters aren't exactly pronounced as they should. Also, letters just disappear. Um, a lot of times when I speak to an Israeli, they, the Aleph and the hey, they, hey, they pronounce the same way. When I was in the tour guiding course, the, the, the guide would say the word, she kept saying Arim. I said, Arim, like Arim cities? Or are you saying Harim mountains? But if you say mountains, and where's the huh? And I don't know, they just don't say it. So the letters are really just getting lost. And the last example I'm going to say, but this isn't the focus of it, how letters get lost, or maybe it is, so we make sure not to lose it. I taught English for two years as I was getting my tour guiding license. And I remember a sixth grader and I was teaching in a very smart school. I, I spoke fluent Hebrew. So we're talking Hebrew and he says, how do you spell the word Agada Shel Pesach? I said, what do you mean? And then I said, how do you not know how to spell it? And I realized because the teachers don't do the huh and they call it Agada. But it's not an Agadah. It's not a story. It's the, I mean, it's technically, it's the Haggadah. And I was just, oh. <laughs> I see some people nodding, nodding along and they could identify with this. So let's not lose letters. They're there for a reason. Uh, very important. Now, how many sounds are there? So today in Lashana Kodesh, we have 28 different sounds, 22 letters plus Beged Kefet most of which were preserved among all the communities, and the Lesh de Gusha was lost, which we already said. How, where are their letters formed? So the letters could be divided into five different categories based on where they formed in the mouth. And it's really cool to see categorized like this. And again, I thank Norma Didia for this because I never thought of it in terms of categories. But you have the otiot geroniot, the letters that come from the throat, aleph, he, chet, and ayin, they come from deeper, and the Arabs are experts at that. From the palate, so from the roof of your mouth, and if you say if you say them now to yourself, you'll see that your tongue does the exact same motion for all of them, gimal, yod, kaf, and kof or kuf, depending on which version you use to say from the tongue, dalid, tet, lamed, nun, and taf. And notice how you have to bring your tongue up to say all of these. The one before from the palate, you don't need your tongue. And from the teeth, zayin, samach, shin, resh, and sadi. And you need your teeth for all of them. So it's just cool how it's uh, divided up like that. And... Oh. I keep, I don't know if you see the mouse moving around like crazy because I just keep moving like where you guys are on the screen. Anyway, uh, now I want to go through every single letter and the pronunciation. And again, I, I know Ashkenazim have a different pronunciation. 
um, different Sephardic communities probably have different pronunciations. I think what's, it's okay to be different, but what's important is to be consistent and to have a masorit. Because we saw there's a lot of chachamim, there's different masorot. So pick one, but be consistent throughout. Um, I think that's what's important. So I'm going to just give the one that I know. Oh, I, I missed Hebrew letters from the lips. Bet, vav, mem, and Okay. How do you pronounce all the letters? So we have Aleph, which is like an A. So that one we know. Bet, B, easy. Then Vet is like a V. Gimal with a Dagesh. And Gimal without a Dagesh. Um, so it has like, like a GH. It would be like, let's say, I'm trying to think of an example of a word. Um, well, let's say the word beged. Beged doesn't really have a dagesh in the gimel, so it would. And I'm not an expert on this. The rabbi is much better, and maybe some of you are. But you would say like beged, something like that. Then you have a dalid with a dagesh. Duh. Now, without a dagesh, is like uh, the word of the. So well, I should have I should have thought in advance of examples of words. But if you have a dalid and a dagesh, that sound we can all make. We could all do a the. He, like an H, Vav. So I've been in shul sometimes and I've heard people, today we, we mostly pronounce it the same as a vet, but I've been in shul and heard people pronounce it like a W. I don't know that it's consistent in every single word, but that is the original pronunciation of it. Zayin Z, Chet, there's no way to do that in English. Um, it's fun if you if you have a name that has a, a, a Chet or a Chaf in it and you ask an American to say it, it'll have a hard time because you don't have that in the English. Then you have tet. Now, tet, really the way to say it, the more proper way is to lift your tongue all the way to the top and it should be something like pet. Like it's a little bit of a deeper T. So it says like a T bechazak. Then you have yod, like a Y, kaf, k, chaf, lamed, mem, nun, samech, Ayin, deep from the throat, there's no equivalent. Peh, fe. Now, here's one that I like because I think my whole life in school, I call this tzadik. And usually when you're looking at, uh, in school and you're learning the letters, they have a picture of a tzadik, they have a picture of a rabbi, and that's what you think the letter is called. There is no kuf or kof at the end of the letter. It's sabdi. So that's just a fun fact. to know that is the proper name to call the letter. Now I'm saying kuf or, and even that it's, it's ka is how you make the sound, not kuf or kof. I've heard both used. I don't know which one is more proper. So I'm throwing them back, back both out. Resh with a dagesh mifta'ane elam. Then you have a resh, like an R in English. Now th- I think this letter has the most throughout the spectrum. You have the Israeli resh, you have the, the resh that I use that when people hear me speak Hebrew, they ask if I came from Argentina or South America because they think it's like the Spanish one. And then when I hear someone from Argentina, I'm like, I don't really sound like that. Then um, the Ashkenazi dash, which is a little bit harder, like, you know, like an R. This, this one is uh, all over the place. Shin, Sin, Taf. And the, without it, I guess, it's supposed to be a, a Thaf, a Th, like the word myth. And here, I'd say Ashkenazim are very makpit, depending on you, how you were raised, 
are very happy to differentiate that if it has a dagesh, they read it like a top, and if it doesn't, they read it like a sup. Now, it can't be correct to be a sup because we already said that no two letters could have the same pronunciation. Already we're missing out that a sheen and a samach sound the same. So now you're throwing a third one in the mix that for sure can't be that. Um, but I, I, there, I don't, I'm not aware of any Sephardim that read it as uh, the proper way as a thought. Maybe there are, I just don't know them, but that is the ideal way to read them. Um, and it's important to know all of this. Now I'd like to summarize what we spoke about today. So we started out talking about my love of Dikduk and how that's what I would speak about on dates until I met my husband and I just didn't because we had enough to speak about and I didn't need to resort to Dikduk. And now we speak about Dikduk every night before we go to sleep. Then we mentioned the declining use of Hebrew, especially with the Muslim conquest and the rabbis were afraid that Hebrew is going to be forgotten and we need to do something now. We have to write the rules down. We have to do a system. We said that all of the whole system is it was a masoret that was passed down from generation to generation. We mentioned the job of and how there were different schools of thought. They wanted to make sure that all of the richness of the, the perushim and, and the way things were from Sinai was passed down, so they developed the system. In the sixth century, we had two main centers in Bavel and in Tveria, and ultimately the system of Tiveria won out. The Ben Asher family was a family of scholars, they were experts in the Mesorah, and we mentioned Rabbi Aharon Ben Asher, who was the seventh one in the family, who put the Nikud in Keter Aram Tzobah, which Harambam used when he wrote Hachot Sefet So we know it's very, very accurate. Then we mentioned the grammarians, uh, Radak Ibn Ezra, they came a little bit later and wrote more and there's tons of books on Diktuk that you could read that they wrote. Then we spoke about the, this was all the first question. And the next question we said, does it really matter if you mispronounce the word? We mentioned a few Gemara where we saw the, saw the importance of saying something right. right the, the, the nice story with Yav, it's Zechad, not Zechad. And we mentioned how the Shulchan Aruch says that a person needs to differentiate between the letters, between Shiva'im. And then we ended with how do we pronounce the letters? That's a very basic thing to know. What's up ahead next week, we are going to talk about the tenuot. Is there a difference between a kamat and a patach? We're going to talk about shevaim, shevanach, and shevanach, because that is very basic to know. And we're also going to talk about something that I think makes people afraid, a kamat katan. That is, if anyone says tahidim, tahidim is full of, full of that, full of that, full of that. And knowing the rules will help. I'm also going to give up ways to cheat. If you don't want to learn all the rules, how you can still say it properly. I want to give you a challenge now until next week and throughout Rosh Hashanah. I want you to think about your pronunciation of Hebrew letters. Is it accurate? Are you saying two letters in one? And I'm still working on mine, and especially now that this is all in my head. Thank you so much for being here. This was really a pleasure. I had such a great time. I'm going to check the chat to see if there's any questions. And if anyone has any questions they want to ask me, feel free. Let me look at the chat. Okay, is it true? Ben Aftali, Ben Ashed were Karaites? Um, I have not heard that. Um, I could uh, look it up. You know what? Anything I'm not sure of, I'm going to keep on the side and I'm going to ask my expert teacher, Norma Didia, about it. 
Are there any differences regarding the Petukhar and Setemo between Benashen and Benaftali? I need to find out. I, I don't know enough to say yes or no. How many differences in pronunciation can be attributed to Ashkenazi versus Sephardi or the accent of the native speaker? That's a very interesting question. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you guys have got another question I don't know. I mean, it's forbidden to put him. Fix Shalikh Sibur, if I'm not mistaken. Um, right? When I started learning Hebrew, I had the discussion with teachers about the, you know, let me read this to myself. Okay, so this uh, a very good question. I addressed it next week, but since it was asked now, I'll talk about it now. The, um, the question is that there's a difference between reading Hebrew and speaking Hebrew, and would you apply both to both? So the truth is I wouldn't because the way Hebrew is today in Israel, they just don't use Shiva'im. And if you want to get along in the streets and you want people to understand you, you have to speak wrong. Um, I know Norman Didia, uh, my teacher, when he comes to Israel, he speaks the way the Tanakh is written and uh, people laugh at it. it, it it's up to you. Um, I, I choose myself uh, when I'm speaking Hebrew. I, I speak wrong. I speak the way the Israelis speak. I, I say Haggadah. I don't do Agadah. I didn't lose that on my letters, but I, I do... A, Sadiq, and I don't do a deep Sadi because that's how you read it. Um, I think that is it. Um, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, first of all. I think there may be some questions, um, but I just want to thank you. I think I've learned so much. Um, you know, really, it's, I'm really looking forward to, to the next two. And would there be would it be possible for you to share the, the presentation at some point? Of um, course, um, yeah, I'll definitely. email it to you after the class. And that needs Hazara. Uh, so, um, may, does anyone want to unmute to ask any questions? So you want just just unmute and have to put your hand. Anyone have questions for her? A lot to think about over Rosh Hashanah. So, thank you for that. <laughs> there's a question by Rachel have you seen that one um, oh, oh and that's a good one okay so is the TH of the Dalit without Dagesh like the the of there is distinct from the light from the TH of meth yes so just like the TH the and meth one is a th one is a the that the it is distinct. It's different in the original way, but most people don't use it today. Although sometimes in the English spelling, it's preserved. I used to go to a shul in Brooklyn called Bet Torah, and the way they spelled Bet was B-E-T-H, because that's the way that the half without the gesh is supposed to be. So, Can, can I ask a quick question on, on the, you, you made a distinction also between the Bet and, and the Vet. You said more of a V. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a discussion we've had because, you know, when we've, we've been in the journals and with Rabbi Dweck and um, whether, I, I mean, I come from, from Gibraltar and I asked some of our experts there in the community and, and they were very makbid. It's, it's not Yaakov with a V, that it's, it's, it's a very soft B. It's a Yaakov. Um, and they said, if you listen to the, they, you know, gave me some, some names. If you listen to them, you'll see they will never do a, a vet, like, a, sorry, a V. 
like a vet, like definitely, I, um, I don't know if you've heard that, that distinction between sort of a V and maybe a soft B. What? So that I've heard that, and in my community in Brooklyn, they don't do a bet and a vet as a V. They also do it as a soft B. Um, the, the, my theory on it, and I'm going to discuss it with Norman, is that because so the Syrian community came from Syria, which is an Arabic-speaking country, there's no V in Arabic. It's, so I, I think that they were influenced by Arabic, and then it, it somehow disappeared, um, but I, I don't like you said that it's it's a question that's mentioned. It, no one has a clear cut answer. I, I'm gonna look in further into it. Um, I know the way my teacher explains it. He says it's a vet. It's like a V. A soft B is a kind of a delicate line. Yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the day, if it's a B, it's a B. But but it's it's also something think, that the rabbi yeah, would have think, said on. I don't know, like to say 100. percent yeah, I think with Rabbi Dweck, when we discussed that, we, you know, how to sort of transliterate it. And, and we've put, the, I think, the a BH, um, <laughs> but it doesn't look good. <laughs> that's, that's, um, so, yeah, I think there's one question. I know it's late for you as well. So uh, we really appreciate that. Um, okay, I forgot the time. I'm having such a good time. I don't even realize the time. It is. Um, us too. I think Abu Kasta of, of the Spanish Ayn, if you, are you aware about that? The NG also something which doesn't look great in <laughs> no i'm not actually never heard it so yeah i think the spanish and portuguese sort of in, in the old i don't know if they still have it but definitely in the older versions there uh, they definitely have the ng i'm sure maybe someone knows more about that can, can the way out and i'm mute cool. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so then, I see Daniel was uh, addressing what you said earlier about similar to how Spanish speaker often pronounce the B. Sorry, uh, the the NG sounds a bit like Eng, so that's Shemang or you know Arabic, something like that. Hmm. Cool. I, <laughs> I, I never heard about it. It's, um, it's also apparent in some of older, like 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 in Sodom and Amorah, why in English they translated as Gamora because of the G sound that would have been heard in the Ayn at one point. So it's Gam, so Sodom and Gomorrah rather than Amura. Oh, that's really cool. And you're reminding me now of Arabic because in Arabic, a lot of times the, let's say, Aza and how to get Gaza because you have, right, you have the connection exactly, exactly. over there. But that, that was like interchangeable. So. Well, <laughs> thank, thank so you. Fun. Thank no, I think we had we really enjoyed that. Thank you so so much. We were very much looking forward to is it next next Sunday? Yeah, next Sunday, everybody. Um, and whenever you can send the presentation, that's fine. I think people would really appreciate going through that again. Um, but thank you so much. Um, and thank every thank you everyone for for joining. And we look forward to Shana Tova. Um, yeah. And of course, and we look for the next, we're no class obviously this, this week, uh, midweek. Um, so next Sunday, we look forward to seeing you all. all right. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you thank, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Nice.